Hi, I'm Jason Switzer, Executive Director of the Alberta Clean Technology Industry Alliance, and I'm really thrilled to be able to present to you the second of our Cleantech Venture Capital Master Classes. As many of you know, accessing early stage capital for Alberta's cleantech sector has been a real challenge. In fact, uh, SDTC and Cycle Capital put out a study back in 2017 that showed that Canadian ventures come up with about half the equity capital and roughly the same in terms of venture debt as a comparable venture that's raising money and growing in the U.S. And so one of the things we want to do is help Albertans invest in Albertan cleantech ventures. The way we're doing that right now, in partnership with Foresight, Cleantech Accelerator Canada, Startup TNT, and the Energy Futures Lab is to create a process for educating early stage cleantech investors culminating in the Alberta Cleantech Investment Summit on March 11th. So join me and our fantastic host, Jeanette Jackson, CEO of Foresight Cleantech Accelerator Canada, herself a serial entrepreneur, angel investor, and now a leader of Canada's top cleantech accelerator in conversation with two of Canada's leading venture capitalists, sharing their practitioner's notebook with our newly minted cleantech angels who are currently going through a process of identifying a set of ventures for final investment decision at the summit on March 11th. It's a really great discussion uh, featuring Marty Reed, uh, founder of Evoke Innovations, a leading industrial cleantech investor with global presence and some very exciting ventures within their portfolio, as well as Darren Bolding, uh, Western Regional Representative and Investor for Natural Products Canada, which is Canada's leading investor in the bioeconomy. With that, let me hand the mic over to Jeanette. Welcome to the Alberta Clean Tech Podcast, where we discuss and explore clean technology with industry leaders. Brought to you by the Alberta Clean Technology Industry Alliance. Darren and Marty, it's fantastic to have you here. And of course, good morning to the Alberta angel investment community that's on the line today. My name is Jeanette Jackson. I'm the CEO of Foresight. Um, we are Western Canada's clean tech accelerator. So we work with early stage ventures and innovators to ultimately find their path forward to scale. And we also run a variety of programs for academia, government, investors, and industry to engage with all of the innovators in the community. So today we're having a great robust discussion on investing in early stage ventures. Uh, so I'm really not going to do all the talking. I'm going to definitely pass it on to Darren and, and Marty to give their uh, amazing expertise and insights into some of these issues. Um, I will just highlight that I am a serial entrepreneur. So I've been on the side of raising money and uh, it's a process and it's, a, and it's really about building relationships and trust. And then on the other side, I have done some angel investing as well. So how do I you know, look at ventures and what are the characteristics? Um, that being said, uh, Marty and Darren have definitely been in this game a lot longer and more in depth than I have. So without further ado, maybe we'll start with Marty. Maybe you can dive in and tell us a bit about your background and how you came to be involved in investing in clean tech. Yep. Good morning, everyone. Uh, so Marty Reed, run a fund called Evoke Innovations, but uh, really spent the bulk of my career in Silicon Valley. Uh, first as an entrepreneur, uh, sort of most relevant to this, three venture-backed companies, uh, and then joined uh, a venture firm as a partner. This was back in uh, kind of the 2008-2009 timeframe. Um, it made the decision with my other partners to focus 100% of our efforts on clean tech and issues around climate change. And so my very first deal that I led as a, a you know, sort of newly minted partner in a fund uh, just happened to be a company based up here in Vancouver called Inventus, now known as Savante, which is doing uh, carbon capture, uh, which then got me connected into the Canadian clean tech scene. And so uh, made another deal after that up here in a company called Axine. And uh, next thing you know, I moved up to Vancouver in 2015 to launch Evoke and, um, and have made, geez, I don't know, another 15 or 20 or so investments in the clean tech community, mostly in Western Canada, but, uh, but also in, uh, in California and the US. So that's my quick sort of one minute bio. Awesome. Thanks, Marty. Darren, over to you. Hello, my name is uh, Darren Bolding. I'm with Natural Products Canada. 
I'm fairly new to the investment world. I've been with uh, National Prize Canada for three years making equity investments. Uh, we have 13. I've been involved in four in uh, Alberta and BC. Uh, my background is I actually start. I did my MBA at the University of Alberta in 2000 and last 20 years I've been involved in commercialization one way or another. Um, started out in tech transfer and ended up moving to uh, Australia and New Zealand and it was in New Zealand that I got involved in clean tech. I was involved in uh, uh, renewable, uh, basically cellulosic ethanol, as well as bioplastics and biocomposites for automobile parts and that. And that got me really interested in the uh, clean tech space and wanted to come home. And um, last three years, I've been with MPC and probably one of our most recent deals in this space is a company called Bass Fiber from Victoria that... Uh, essentially uses hemp fiber to replace uh, synthetic fibers and wipes and uh, other types of products. So yeah, so that's a little bit about me. Thanks, Darren. I'm gonna start you back on Darren. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your investment thesis at NPC. Do you wanna give us a little bit of a snapshot there? Sure. So with Natural Products Canada, the key thing is uh, what we invest in has to have a biological innovation. So we don't invest in things that are artificial, involve artificial intelligence or um, drones, for example, but we do invest in things like biomaterials, which for example, using hemp to replace uh, plastics, uh, biosensors, um, uh, ingredients that come from waste products. So all those types of biological things is what we invest in. We put in an up to $500,000 in rounds between one to 2.5 million. So we're in on the seed on the seed stage. Uh, we've done one deal on series A, but we are seed investors. And often we do co-invest with uh, angels. A number of our deals have been co-investments with angels. Um, yeah, so, it's, so I think that's pretty much a summary of what we do. What we do. Awesome, Marty, how about Evoke? Well, I want to push back on Darren and say he won't invest in AI. I, Jason likes to ask people, well, you know, know, what part of their job won't be replaced by AI? And uh, I think AI is in everything, so uh, including natural products, but I'll, I'll set that aside for a moment. Um, on the Evoke side, our thesis is pretty straightforward. Uh, we have two primary partners in Suncor and Synovus that I presume everyone uh, is familiar with. And so our, our mission is really to help them improve their environmental performance. We do that by investing in early stage innovation uh, with a pretty broad lens. If you think about the scope of all the things that uh, say a Suncor might touch all the way from sort of retail distribution all the way up through production. Um, and so we've invested in kind of a mix of hard tech um, through to digital solutions. Hard tech being things like carbon capture or converting CO2 into valuable products. Uh, on the software or digital side, things like, yes, how do you apply AI to improve performance of industrial solutions? Um, typically come in with a first check, sort of that post kind of early angel round, uh, which means our first check is usually somewhere between one and 2 million, but we've got a bit of flexibility. Um, I think our smallest check ever was 250K and our largest uh, was 10 million, uh, which is a a pretty big range, but we uh, also like to syndicate um, in, in one of the values, and, and we may touch on this later, that, but we, we really like to maintain a pretty broad network of syndicate partners that we know and trust throughout the, throughout the globe uh, and are talking with investors literally throughout, throughout the world uh, that we might be able to bring in later stage to help support these companies because um, usually it takes a whole team effort to get it over the goal line. Um, sorry, I, I mentioned geography, but a lot of what we do is in California, or sorry, in Canada, but um, we are agnostic. And so if you've got a great solution that, that we think can, can help solve challenges of industry, we don't really care where you are. So. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Marty. Um, let's move on in terms of selecting viable ventures. You know, what do you look for when you're evaluating and doing your due diligence? And perhaps even some commentary on how you look at sort of the more incremental opportunities versus the transformational opportunities. Um, Marty, back to you. Yeah, and, and what I will say is we, <laughs> this, is, this evolves. Um, and what I would say is where we are today, we're not looking at anything incremental. 
uh, is sort of the easy answer. That, but to expand beyond that, I guess, um, what are we looking for these days, given what has been a sort of tectonic shift in ESG and GHG? I'm going to try to only use three letter acronyms if I could for a while, but um, with what really has been a transformational shift, we are focused on kind of carbon capture, sequestration, and or hydrogen at scale uh, to include storage and transportation. And so sort of within there, it's tough to imagine kind of little incremental improvements. And we generally measure impact by kind of, could we get to gigaton is a bit, bit of a high bar, uh, but uh, maybe half a gigaton. And when I say gigaton, meaning of reduced GHG emissions. Um, and, and, you know, in the same way, if you were applying for a grant from, you know, SDTC or Emissions Reduction Alberta, you have to put in some calculations. That, that's the sort of scale that, that we're looking for. Uh, on the inc incremental side, though, uh, to be honest, and we have made some investments in uh, recently in this space, I guess most recently, and this is public, a, a company called Eric's. Um, fantastic founder. We met through Creative Destruction Lab. Uh, she's based down in the Gulf States, but has developed an autonomous uh, robot that does inspections, uh, inline inspections, and and um, and pipe inspections. It's, it's really clever. It's cool. Um, and, and how we then would determine that would would be a pretty simple question, which is. You know, could we see this company getting to revenue within kind of 12 to 18 months? And, and if yes, do we then see a pathway where this could get sort of gobbled up by a, a big provider? And in this case, okay, you know, who, who does this at scale? It's a Schlumberger, Baker Hughes, Halliburton sort of approach. We come in, we help them get to revenue two, three years later, you know, off they go. And, and we've got a similar example of this in a company of ours called Dark Vision, uh, local uh, BC company here, went through exactly this path, came in, got them to revenue. Their revenue sort of started that classic hockey stick. And uh, just about a year ago, they got acquired um, undisclosed, but uh, let's just say it was a very nice outcome for the founders and, uh, and for us early investors. So anyways, those are kind of the two buckets, either have a massive impact or be able to get the revenue almost immediately. So. Right. Darren, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I like to think most of our investments are transformational. So um, I guess it, it depends how you define transformational versus incremental. Um, but, you know, I, I, I like to see, I, I get a lot of entrepreneurs that just really fanatic about saving the environment. And, um, you know, that's really key. It's important in clean tech. But I often look, well, is a customer going to buy this? What is the value proposition for the customer? And, you know, Jeanette, one of your, one of the companies I work with that, you know, is uh, wine crush. And when I originally started working with them, it was all about taking the waste from wineries and making a food ingredient and say, well, why the hell would anybody buy this ingredient? Like what's, what will drive the customer? And, um, you know, I stopped and had a burger, plant-based burger, and I saw all the salt. <laughs> and I just called him up, just focus on plant-based meat. And he's got tremendous amount of interest. And one thing that's really key for me is to see, we'll invest pre-revenue, but seeing those partnerships and those companies uh, interested in testing the product or trialing it really gives me a, a better sense that there's a market out there and more confidence uh, that there is a market uh, when they really when they begin start selling, so I, I really like to see those uh, partnerships, uh, etc. Also, some really strong uh, IP that has some breadth is uh, really important. Um, there's going to be competition in the future, uh, regardless of what's in the market right now. You will be facing competition and having some solid IP and a solid technology that solves one big problem um, is very important for us. But you know, yeah. Awesome. I noticed that neither, neither of you mentioned the team. Uh, maybe we, we can dive in a little bit there. Yeah, I'll add on that. The team is very important. You, you, you mean it's with startup companies often you don't have a senior, uh, senior person, but it, you have to have somebody that's willing to listen and wants, recognizes the gaps and is willing to fill those gaps and listen to you. So that's key. Um, 
vast fiber that we invested in was unusual that it had a very senior team or like it had a dream team, right? That's just like, holy mackerel. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, seldom you get that, but you, it's important to have somebody that's going to listen and recognizes the gaps. Marty, what about you? <laughs> I'll offer a very contrarian view. Uh, and if anyone sat in on a lecture I gave at U of C a month or so ago, this may surprise you, but 90% um, of venture investors will say some version of what they look for is a great team, a well-defined market, product market fit, strong IP. Um, and I'll argue that's effectively completely wrong. Um, and, and this is an important sort of question you want to ask yourself, which is why are you an investor and what sort of you know, outcome or returns are you looking for? And so you know, there's kind of two buckets. There's the, the good, smart business in which you can put in some capital and make a decent return. Uh, and those are generally going to be fairly modest in size. If you want to play in venture, none of that matters because the only way to make it work in venture is you need to get big home runs. Just You can run the math a million ways a Sunday. You show me any other way, I'll believe it, but I've not seen it. And so to get those big home runs, you just need to fundamentally think different. And, and so this is where this question about, you know, is the market, is it transformative or not? Well, if your total addressable market doesn't start with a trillion, it's not transformative as one example. And, and so I can give example after example of where uh, if, if you really wanted to provide a big return, you got to throw out a lot of those things. And so on the team piece, more than anything else, I'm looking for a couple of founders who are very open to collaboration and thinking really big and can sell a vision. And by sell a vision, I mean, actually arguably the worst are folks that come out of industry and they're like, we've been working on this you know, left-handed swizzle nut for 40 years and we can improve <laughs> it by 1.7 degrees. Like I just, I'd rather have yeah. the 28 year old who says, I don't know anything about this, but I think I can transform it. I'll yeah. bet on that person. Um, notice the, the important part there was a founder who is willing to learn, listen, and collaborate. Um, it, it, you know, when you start getting to my lessons learned, CEOs who think they're the CEO for life, like that's, that's the biggest red flag that I sort of face in any deals I look at. And I ask myself every time, like, where do I think this founder is going to end up in two, three years? And, and are they excited about that path? Because if they're more excited about being a CEO than they are about building a transformative technology, that's awesome. It, there, so. Yeah. Let's switch it over to the sort of angel investor side. Um, you know, for me as a founder who had raised uh, money from under 50 angel investors and then went to, you know, work with the venture community to raise our first seed round. Uh, sometimes when you're your first time going through this process, you don't realize how important it is to have a good angel community that supported you so that the, the process moving forward is, is manageable. Um, perhaps you can shine some light on what your view is on what makes a good angel investor. Darren? I mean, I, I think the best, the ideal angel investor is somebody that can bring a lots of value besides money. So it's all the connections, it's all the advice, uh, the support that they provide. Um, so it's not just about money uh, for them. That is the ideal one. Um, I mean, if they have a background in that industry and know players in industry and they, they built their own company, they can be very helpful. That's ideal. Um, Often you don't get those types of angels, but at very least you don't want to have an angel that wants to control everything that has made all their money in a different industry and thinks that they could apply all their principles to this new, what, what you're doing, which may be totally different. Um, I mean, I've been involved early on with one company I, I worked for, which we had an, a very wealthy angel that made a lot of money in um, mobile telephones and came into the biotech and just didn't understand the timelines. I mean, it takes a long time to go to market, right? And just could not understand that and wanted to control everything. And, and I mean, it just ended up being a disaster, right? So. Yeah. Marty, what do you think? Yeah, I think similar comments, which is I'll start with, I think it's most important that an angel be really clearly aligned with the vision of the founder and 
and there are a whole host of ways that can get sideways. And so Darren just mentioned like time frame. You know, if you come from the software world and now you're in, you know, pharma biotech and, 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 and there's just a time mismatch, it's a fundamental problem. We have, and, and I'll probably offend everyone on this call, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> within Evoke, we've got a database and, and we literally have a category where we just list some deals is like Calgary specials, which are deals where an entrepreneur brought in a local angel who knows oil field services really well. And they're building what is effectively an oil field services business, but they need venture capital to build it. And it's just a complete mismatch. And so it's a, it's a failing of both the founder and the angels to be really clear about, okay, what type of business do we want this to be? And, and if it wasn't clear, like service companies are not venture companies. Um, we don't think that way. We're not looking for cash flow. We're not looking for multiples on EBITDA. That's just not how venture works. We're looking for companies that can really rapidly scale with strong intellectual property and then ultimately get acquired. That's, that's how venture works. Um, and so go back to the beginning, you know, the founders and the angels need to just be really clear. Here's the type of company, here's what I need in my investors um, and, and and the more that that communication can happen regularly, um, the better. And, and then the, the other the final one I'll say is, I, I hate the angel that thinks they need to sort of create something new in a deal. Oh. Yeah. After yeah. having to deal with university tech transfer offices, which is my number one sort of, sort of most challenging thing in life, my second is trying to fix deals where angel investors thought that they should put all sorts of special terms in. It, I don't even do it anymore, actually. I just walk away. Um, and so any deviation from standard docs. What, what are the terms? I mean, I'm seeing some examples where earlier ventures are going out and they're getting, they're just going with common shares. They're not doing anything preferred until much later in the, in the process. What do you guys think about that? I'll just, I'll offer two comments. So one, yeah. Work with a lawyer who has done at least 50 venture rounds. If they haven't done 50 venture rounds, just go find a different lawyer, full, full stop. You know, it's sort of like if I'm gonna go get eye surgery, I could go to my GP down the street or I can go to a surgeon who only does, you know, LASIK surgery. I'm gonna do that. Yeah. So only work with a lawyer who knows what the heck they're doing and then only use CVCA documents or NVCA, which is the Canadian Venture Capital Association. They've defined them. If your first draft is more than, you know, three red lines on that entire document, like there's, there's a fundamental problem. So, Darren? Uh, I think all our deals are mostly common equity. I, I think preferred is probably more common uh, in the U.S. than in Canada. So, um, I mean, one of the last deals also had warrants, which, had, which, had kind of, which, which we really liked because the company took off. Um, we, I think we may have done one as a convertible note, but generally common equity, uh, I mean, I think we stayed away from safes and that, but um, yeah. Safes were on trend a couple of years ago. They were, it was like the only thing that you could go to market with. Has that declined quite a bit over the last year? I wouldn't say declined. Uh, this, this came out of the Valley, geez, probably a decade ago. And, and you're right, we're, we're all the rage and in a, startup market where the startup has all the power, safes sort of rise in popularity. And then when it's an investor market, uh, they tend to decline in popularity. I, I, I think we've sort of reached a middle ground where we all understand how to use safes uh, with some proper governance around them. So I, it's not my favorite instrument, but I'm, I'm not opposed to them. Awesome. Let's get into sort of how due diligence should look when you're you know early on. Often these ventures, they don't have a paying customer yet, but they hopefully are doing lots of customer discovery and, and building up their sales funnel and, and finding their right sort of niche beachhead market. How, what should the angels on here look for when they're trying to validate the, well, basically validate the technology and the perform, potential performance of the business? Darren, Marty? <laughs> oh, I mean, that's a good question. Due diligence is, um, I mean, I, I think the key thing is, is really understanding how big of a pain point this is in the industry and, and talking to people and it's just a really significant problem. Um, I mean, I've um, I talked to a lot of big companies in the plant 
protein area that told me that salt is a major, major issue, right? It was part of my due diligence. And um, I mean, and also in terms of the technologies, it really innovative. Look what other technologies being developed, what's in the market, not just what's in the market, but what's being developed it. How strong is their IP in terms of patents and that? Where are they at in their technology development? How further they have to do? What's, what's it required to get regulatory approval? Is their timelines right for regulatory approval? Um, I mean, do they have, uh, what do they need? I mean, you have to understand what the risks are in the company. And um, then there's some risks that you may not be able to deal anything deal with and so you need to walk away, but then there's other risks that you can mitigate. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great, that's great. How, um, you know, in terms of your experiences, what are one or two lessons you've learned that you would share in terms of a really big success or a enormous failure? Marty? Yeah, and I may tie this in with actually the previous question, which is when I'm in, in due diligence early on, I think you've got to be really clear and, and, and put opportunities in two buckets, which is bucket one is, yeah, they may not have market, you know, traction or, or, you know, verification just yet, but can we put in a small amount of money and figure it out? And, and that oftentimes what an angel round is used for, which is, all right, I'll give you 250K, whatever it is, like go use that and come back with customers. The other bucket is, this is a big, hairy, transformational type of technology that might take five to seven years, in which case you just, you don't have that luxury. And so in my mind, you have to eliminate any market risk, which is if it's going to take you five years to figure out if this works or not, if it works, it, it better be 100% absolutely clear that it will be a success. And, and so, you know, it's sort of, you know, I don't want to say a cure for cancer sort of thing where, you know, it's pretty obvious if you've got a cure for cancer, there's a market for it, but it, it's kind of that binary. Um, and so it, as one example I'll use, and I think it's, it's relevant to this conversation uh, or sort of this audience, uh, especially in Alberta, you know, at Rhoda, which was my previous firm in the Valley, our first sort of big clean tech exit was a company called Solozyme, and it was developing um, biological uh, chemicals, uh, oils derived from algae. Um, and we took the company public, about a $2 billion market cap. Um, and our belief, of course, was, hey, if we could produce, you know, drop-in fuels, replacements for hydrocarbons, uh, you know, at scale, that there would be a market there. And of course, mm -hmm. what we've seen in the world is that's just not true. Uh, and, and so there is no green premium uh, at least not one that I've seen anywhere in the market yet. And so fast forward another three years and that company was, was back at zero. Um, and so from zero to 2 billion to zero in the span all in of about five years. And, and the mistake on our end was that we assumed that there would be a market for a, a, you know, a zero carbon drop in fuel. And as much as the world says they're, they want it, I'm yet to see uh, that that actually exists. Darren? Yeah, I think, I mean, going back um, when I was in New Zealand, we invested in a, a biocomposite for, um, for using automobiles because there's lots of interest in replacing synthetic plastics in automobiles. And um, it was very early on. Um, never has gone anywhere because at, at that time it looked really good, but there's so many new competing technologies that come through and uh, it's, I mean, it's, you think it's great at the time, but new things come along and it's, it's a lot of it is timing too. I think getting timing right is important. Um, I mean, I think, you know, 15 years ago, bioplastics, I mean, I don't think the timing was there, but now you see a lot more of it. And I think the timing is, is probably right now for more, more bioplastic products to come through, right? But yeah. yeah, it's. Yeah. What are you, what are your expectations on the governance of the of the venture? Is it too early? Um, you know, do you encourage them to at least get some foundations on governance set up uh, if they haven't already, or should the angel community be worried about that? Darren. 
Oh, I think governance is important, right? You I mean you're talking about setting up a board and that, and I mean that's I mean that's part of our I mean that's critical to have that board representation and and that, and we 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 would demand having that in all of our deals. So it's it's important and. Uh, and also, um, even an advisory board, like sometimes you find SEALs that may not have the right, a lot of experience, but they can bring in people and from an advisory board on the board, they can provide that. So, but, I mean, governance is critical, I think. Yeah. Marty, do you guys always take a board seat or? Well, so, so yes. And, and to, to double down on what Darren said, it, it is so important that you, you force yourself to get into the habit of minimally once a quarter sitting down and sort of documenting, okay, here's what we're going to do. Here's our priorities. Here's our plan. Um, and, and if it's really early on, sort of at an angel stage, like I don't care if it's a formal board or an advisory board. I don't really care. What I do care about though, is that you have that discipline to start that practice such that I can say, Hey, show me, you know, your board materials from two quarters ago. Great. You said you were going to do this. Did you do this? Um, it, it's really important. Um, but yes, uh, with Evoke, we take a board seat. Uh, I, I can sort of, there are probably two or three deals where we haven't, and those are either so early stage, it just didn't make sense to put in a, a more formal board. Um, or it was, you know, so the opposite extreme where yeah. it was too late and we were like, ah, we'll come in. But, <laughs> this, is a, this is a good team there. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I've got a question about sort of, you know, when the ventures come to you, um, let's maybe put our angel community hat on, you know, what are mistakes that you often see um, for one of the things that I notice is, and I actually had this myself. So I thought as a CEO that I needed to know everything. I was, I was almost afraid to let the investors know what I didn't know because I wanted them to feel confident, right? But after working with the board and understanding that it's okay not to know everything, it just became much easier to have the conversations that you need to have. So um, maybe you can lean in a little bit on what you think some of the mistakes that uh, ventures and, and those early entrepreneurs make when they're going to the angels and, and pitching and even yourselves, what you've experienced. I can jump in, which is, sure. I mean, Jeanette, I think you nailed the first one, which is and something I said earlier, the founders need to be very open as to their strengths, weaknesses, be collaborative, be communicative, Part of that goes back to what I just said around board meetings. If they're not willing to sit down once a quarter and tell you what went well and what didn't go well, that's, that's a really bad sign. Um, a, a, a couple of other buckets, maybe. Um, I've, I've mentioned I have a disdain for universities um, or, or more specifically tech transfer. And so any angel or startup that's coming out of university, get that buttoned up because that can drag on and be just a nightmare forever. I'll, I'll Shortly, sort of, or just below universities, in my concern, are strategics or corporates that come in early and support a company. Uh, and the amount of hours I've spent trying to sort of, I was, I was about to say something inappropriate, but uh, navigate, sort of, navigate, sort of navigate <laughs> yeah. uh, deals that they had signed with big companies. And I'll throw my own partners under the bus, like Suncor you know, has been known in the past to come in and, and give a company a small amount of money, but in exchange, they want, you know, X, Y, and Z. And it inevitably X, one of those things totally screws them up going forward. Yeah. And then you're, you know, cleaning it up, negotiating it, trying to get them to sign away those rights. Oh, it's, what a nightmare. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree with that. And one, I know I have a specific, one of, one of the companies we invested in very early on, they brought in a strategic and they had an option for exclusivity and they had so much control, no other invest, investors want to come in. So it's impossible for them to raise money from anybody else. So really they're become the R&D arm for this big company because they, they, they don't really control their destiny. Um, it wasn't until they actually sold that technology and pivoted out of it to something different that really opened up the doors. And we actually then invested in them. It was like 20 years after, but the first 12 years they were sucked in with this big company. Uh, but, you know, I, I agree with Marty that it's very important that um, the, um, the founder understands their gaps, uh, but also what are they gonna do about it? What are they gonna, how are they gonna, what's their plan to, uh, 
mitigate those risks? How, how are they going to go about it? And, and um, I mean, I always love it when they ask questions. Well, what do you think? <laughs> so <laughs> I mean, ask for advice, right? So um, I mean, that, that, that's key. And that's um, somebody that kind of oversells. I mean, I know not really. Um, yeah. I know you want a good salesperson, but there's a yeah. time to sell and a time to collaborate and get, get the, the strategy sorted out, right? True. Absolutely. Along those lines, though, Jeanette, it, one of the things that, that can get screwed up very early on is sort of cap table and valuation. And so what you don't want is that entrepreneur that's so, quote, successful at selling, they end up with a valuation early on that's just not realistic. And, and there is some, and, and angels oftentimes will say, listen, you know, we didn't price it. We just did a safe or whatever. And so, hey, no big deal. But expectations are set. And there's some pretty simple cap table math, or I call it venture math. Like just stick stick to that. Um, it, and by that I mean, you know, after an initial round of investment, you know, investors probably should own 20% of the company, and you know, the founders the rest. And then when they do the next round, it's maybe they give up 25%, and you end up where kind of the founders have 50%, and the investors own 50%. You know, there, it, there's kind of just a way it steps each path, you know, each step along the journey. And when you screw that up, it, even if you, the investor, or you, the founder, got a good deal today, if you can't raise a round tomorrow, yeah. it doesn't help you. And so you've got to think about kind of it's chess. You've got to be thinking several moves ahead. And, and so again, cap table and valuation can get totally screwed up um, and just cause problems down the road. Yeah, that's, that's an issue because then you can have a down round the next round is then because your initial price was too high, right? So um, that's not good. So Last week, last week um, when we had our session, this is the second session, of course, and the other group was mentioning that it's a bit competitive right now for some of the later stage investments. Like there's a lot of money flowing around. Uh, how have you been finding that on your side? And is there anything that the angel community should be looking at if, um, you know, with that environment? I'll, I'll be clear. There is a lot of money flowing around, but it's going to a very small subset of people. Yeah. And so, if you are a founder who is well-known and has had a successful exit in the past, if you are in a, a given, you know, sort of attractive, hot space, great. Like, like the, the poster child for this right now is if you're an EV sort of mid to late stage electric vehicle company, just file your SPAC paperwork now. And if you don't know SPACs, just Google them. But literally there's been, I think, 10 EV companies that have gone public via SPAC in the last six months. It, at stupid valuations. I mean, literally full on stupid valuations. Um, and so it, I would say this myth of there's a lot of money floating around. Well, sorry, there's a truth to it, but, but where the reality hits the road, if you will, is that money is not going to sort of your average Joe or Jane. It, it's going to Elon Musk's brother or, you know, yeah. equivalent. Yeah. Uh, if you're not a household name, you're probably not getting that kind of money. Yeah, there, there is a lot of money, but it, it's, it's, I think the companies are finding difficulty accessing it. So I mean, it's right. It's not going to your average company. Um, they're all, everybody's looking for that transformational big front. That's going to be hundred million plus in revenue within, you know, number of years. So it, it's, it's, it's it's a it's a tough environment I think for the companies to uh, raise capital and um, I mean it's it's important to understand uh, as as, an, as a, a company what type of investor you should be going after right so I, I I see lots of investors pitching for to us for example that probably or others that probably should be at a family friends or or um, early angel round um, so. Um, before they even come to us, right? So it's, um, yeah. I've got a question on your philosophy around the time the early stage ventures spend on government grants. So recently there was an article posted, uh, it had a little bit of a Vancouver angel community flavor to it, but I think it's worth sharing with this audience where, you know, there is so much early stage money from IRAP and, and, and angel investors love seeing their 50 or $100,000 
turned into two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars. But at what cost? Um, and, you know, uh, the fortunate thing is that the funding's there to help the ventures. The unfortunate thing is that they're not as scrappy and competitive as ventures that are not in Canada that have that pool of, of, of unlimited, you know, re research grants available. Um, so, what is your perspective on, you know, the angels' role in encouraging the venture to to try to leverage all those? Is that a good use of time, or is it better to focus on the customer? I, I'm more on the latter, but I'd love to get your perspective. You know, okay. I, I, I think as a startup company, you need to focus. I mean, I, I've seen companies, they're professional grant writing companies. They just apply for one grant after another and get all this and actually don't seem to go anywhere <laughs> other than getting another grant. So I think it's really focusing on the customer, and, as you say, and getting equity. And then if you have the time and, and can put in the time to go for a grant, it's just extra leverage. But I don't think you need to, you should rely on it or expect it at all. It's um, so, yeah. Marty? I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll say it maybe a little differently, which is it, first off, it depends on the type of company. Um, you know, there are certainly certain companies that are very well suited to grants. Um, and given the two that I mentioned that, that we're focused on carbon capture and hydrogen, I mean, right now, if, if you're not hustling for grants, if you're in that space, you're, you know, literally leaving money on the table. Yeah. Um, and so what I would say is treat it like you would a sales channel and dedicate a resource to it. Again, if you're in a, in the type of company for which grants are generally available. Um, and if you can dedicate a resource and that resource pulls in two, three, four, five million dollars a year, it's a simple ROI calculation. And, and we've got companies, um, and, and I could, I'll, I can mention two off the top of my head that I've been very involved with going back a decade, Inventus, they hired a, a head of BD and that title really was like, hey, go go get government grants. And he's brought in more than 20 million uh, in grants. Uh, we've got a company right now, Econa, same thing. We've got a tech dev team and a guy, Gary, who's, who's also technical, but Gary is unbelievable at knowing how to write grants. And so they've secured 12 million in funding non-dilutive funding. And this is for a company that to date has only raised two and a half million in equity financing. Yeah. And I mean, so just massive leverage. Um, yeah. Half of our companies probably haven't raised even a million um, because they aren't sort of in that sweet spot. In which case, I think Darren, your point, like focus on the customer is what you got to do. So. Yeah, it, I mean, I think Mari makes a point. There, there are companies in the, in the, especially in the clean tech space, where it's a, a real big cap, cap X spend they need and right. And STTC and, I mean, ERA, they can provide five, ten million dollars, right? And I mean, that goes a long way. So, but customers are always required, at least for those two deals, right? So, yeah, you, yeah. Need, you need to have partners in place anyway, STTC and that. So. Um, you know, one of the companies I know has a partnership with Ballard that's uh, applying for STC, right? So, yeah. How early stage are you going in terms of the technology readiness level? And if some folks on the line are not familiar with the TRL or technology readiness levels, definitely get yourself familiar. It's used as a an indicator for various, um, well, investment opportunities and grant opportunities and lots of other discussions that they'll, you know, the venture will ultimately have with different stakeholders. Uh, Marty, how early are you guys going? Uh, well, we, we've done this twice already and we're about to do it a third time, which is we've, we're willing to launch our own companies yeah. where we haven't seen the right solution in the market. So decided to build the company ourselves. Um, in one case, we spun it out of UBC. So went and found a professor and started it kind of TRL level. I guess it was two. Um, the other actually was the example I just gave was Econa. We, we saw it up a, a need in the market and that there wasn't even a technology. It was a, we're going to go solve this problem. Uh, let's, let's build the team and then we'll go find the tech. Um, and we're about to do that a, a third time. I just hired an EIR uh, and that EIR's job is to uh, pull together the tech to launch a new business. Um, but if we're not doing it ourselves, um, we, we probably prefer you to be around, you know, kind of four or five, which is, you know, show me at least on a desktop that it can work. Um, yeah. 
That's really interesting. Uh, Marty, I mean, I'm not going to get into too much about Foresight, but we're actually exploring that as well. We still see a lot of ventures that are a technology looking for a problem, and we need to change that mindset. It's it's actually it, it, the, the amount of efficiency and resources wasted on ventures like that. It's just reality. I mean, unfortunately, I, you know, we, we do want to welcome everyone into the Foresight community and walk them through the fundamentals of you know, team, value prop, business model, customer discovery, but sometimes there's just never going to be that product market fit. And so we're exploring, if you understand the gaps, how can you, you know, bring these entrepreneurs, like there's lots of people in the community you can really curate together to come up with something cool. So, yeah. yeah. Jeanette, Jeanette you respond. like almost every company has some sort of technology and then they'll pivot once, which is a euphemism for, we didn't really know what the customer wanted. And then they'll pivot again because maybe now they've kind of got it right. And so why go through that process? Why not, yeah, just go start with what's the problem? If you really define the problem, then it's fairly straightforward to then go find a solution. Um, so anyways, that's, that's our approach. And, and we, uh, we've found success doing that. Yeah. I, I, I think for us, it depends how transformational the technology is. Um, you know, our earliest stage investment was Novobine in Vancouver. Um, and it was a very transformational technology. I mean, there's, but they're not in trials yet, but it was recognized by lots and lots of very big companies who were all chasing it because of how transformational that technology was. And so we invested in it where it felt comfortable. They had some partners to set up. They still needed to do trials, but it may be three, four, three years before they start making sales. Um, I mean, but I mean, it's it's tougher for me to get something higher risk through my investment committee. Um, that is that's got still a lot of risk to it. Um, I mean, it's I like things that are at I mean, tier eight or that I mean are, are at the pilot scale, demo pilot pilot scale, where you sort of got more confidence in it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Would you describe natural products um, solutions as? bio or I mean you do a lot of food stuff as well right so agri-food yeah anything biological so from ingredients to um, food functional food or um, we've done one CPG brand company which is a non-alcoholic beer company in Calgary mm -hmm. uh, which was a series a round um, I mean typically when we get into that side of things we want to see sales and revenue growth uh, with the CPG brand play uh, but anything biological, so not all our investments are clean tech, but we do a lot in egg and food and stuff too. So, yeah, perfect. What um, maybe you'd love to get sort of your thoughts on some trends? I mean, Marty, you've highlighted um, EVs. Uh, you know, your your thesis is more around, um, I guess, the resource sector broadly, what we could call it. And so, what are you seeing in terms of trends there? I mean, go back to what I said around ESG, um, or you could call it the Larry Fink impact. You know, Larry Fink, for those who don't know, is the head of uh, BlackRock who manages $7 trillion, which I think is 5% of the world's money, um, who is flat out stated, if, if your company doesn't have a plan around climate change, then you're, you're not going to be viable or backable. Um, and so that's, that's very much on trend for us. And so you can see it in, in both... Um, sort of what's come out of sort of Minister Wilkinson's office of late and or what I guess now is Mr. Champagne's office from uh, on the Canadian side of what they're interested in, which is policies around hydrogen, policies on climate change, carbon, uh, uh, CCUS carbon capture utilization, um, all of which are gonna have pretty massive government dollars supporting them. This is again, that nice leverage you get. Like a $3 billion uh, strategic innovation fund, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. 3 billion for SIF. Um, yeah. And so that that's all uh, at play. In parallel, I mean, one of the thing I'll mention is, and this goes back to my other one, which is if you don't have a strong AI component to what you're doing, um, and, and I don't mean just sprinkle AI, AI on it and it, you know, and it, and it's a magical elixir, but you know, we are seeing a fundamental transformation of the way, certainly in our space, natural resources is going to be operated. You know, the days of hiring more labor in remote dangerous camps, that's going to go away. It, yeah. You know, as we bring on improved telecommunications, improved robotics, improved sensors, 
all of that is going to have a pretty massive transformation. Um, and so we continue to invest um, pretty strongly on that thesis. Um, one of the, I think data more important. So for Foresight, we have about 300 active ventures in our portfolio right now. And more and more of them are focused on digital data transformation. There's still a, a hardware component, whether it's sensors and things like that. But there's there was a period of all the technology you can get, just throw it at the problem and see if it works. And now there's an element of, okay, let's take a step back and, and identify how big these problems really are uh, to know and, and a venture itself can become quite successful just on that data component. Darren, do you okay. see any of that? Oh, go I was ahead, just gonna say, I mean, Data is a competitive advantage. I mean, it, yeah. at the end of the day, Tesla is not worth more than all the other car companies combined because it makes the most reliable car in the world because it doesn't. Or pretty. Um, it, <laughs> It's, the same, it's the same shape since I think the beginning, right? But it, <laughs> what it has is arguably, and, and I think the only challenger on the horizon is Google. It, it has a bigger data moat than what anyone else can ever uh, sort of amass. And, and when you think about the difference that makes, just ask yourself, what percentage of the market does Google have for search versus Bing? Like, I, I can almost guarantee no one on this call is using Bing as their search engine. Because once you have more data than anyone else, your algorithms can improve faster than anyone else and, and it becomes self-fulfilling. Um, and that's why a lot of these industrial data plays, it, it's a land grab. And if you don't have that data advantage, it, you will ultimately lose to whoever does have it. Darren, are you seeing a lot of data? Um, yeah, I mean, as, as a, we do see a lot of data. I mean, you're right. I mean, data has to be part of everything in that. Um, you know, from what we look at, we, we see a lot in, you know, uh, use utilization of waste streams, uh, I mean, for ingredients, et cetera. We have a company that's now taken the methane uh, gas from oil and gas sites to make protein for animals. And so it's gas fermentation of protein, and it's and it's in Alberta, based in Alberta, using the gas. And so it's 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 really interesting how they're taking these uh, byproduct streams that, to create you know different things in the animal feed and food market. Um, alternative protein is really big. Uh, there's a major problem with antibiotics. So everybody's looking for a replacement of antibiotics. Um, and then biomaterials, and I'm just waiting for that to sort of take off um, in that. Biomaterials has always been a soft spot for me. I love the concept of transforming something natural into something that replaces something that's perhaps been unnatural to date. Yeah, I mean, I, I think bass fiber replacing uh, plastic wipes with hemp, it's going to be massive. All the big companies are so into it, right? So it's, yeah. you know. Okay, back to some of the angel um, feedback. Obviously, the angels are coming in quite early in the ventures uh, life cycle. How can they protect their stake? You know, can they? How do, you know? Is there a structure in place or a mechanism that allows them to sort of manage their ability to stay, have a decent percentage early on? What should they expect, Darren? Um. I, I, I don't know how, I, I think it's more important to have some representation on the board, even though you may not have a board position, you do need somebody on the board that you can talk to and you do need to get reports all the time and keep on up to date and, um, you know, getting a huge percentage in company, I, I, I'm not sure how important that is. Um, um, you need to have somebody you can trust uh, somebody that's going to talk to you all the time and not, okay, take your money and I'll hear, I'll talk to you another year. Right. So it's, yeah. Marty. Yeah. I mean, here's what I would say, which is first off, be realistic. So 40% of venture funds or sorry, venture backed companies, and these aren't angel backed, these are venture backed, which presumably has sort of gotten one stage further in the process. 40% go to zero. And this is across hundreds of thousands of companies over 50 years, and that hasn't really changed much. And, and go back to my opening salvo around, you know, what really matters in this are big outcomes. And so if you don't try to optimize for, you know, percentage at an early stage, do everything you can to optimize for success. Because 
one big outcome, if you own 1%, is much, much bigger than six mediocre outcomes where you own 10%. And so just focus on how do you help the company be successful and truly successful at kind of a global scale. Um, the one other thing that I'll mention that I, I think everyone needs to ask, and I see this especially in Canada, are you competitive globally? Do you have a true global competitive advantage? Because if not, and, and I was just laughing my butt off, I see Joe had posted this article that Alex Danko had put in and it was describing Toronto Waterloo as the nice person's Silicon Valley, which, which I think is hysterical on so many levels. Um, what I will say though, is if Silicon Valley is gonna fund it, fund the same concept or same idea with three times more money and throw bodies at it who are working twice as hard, how do you win if you're competing against that? And so again, if you're an angel and you don't see that this company has a true global competitive advantage, ask yourself, does this make sense? Because if not, you're probably playing for a single and not a home run. And it, I mean, I could add to that too, as I, mean, I, I think those companies are much more likely to get bought and you, you're likely to see an exit where you can get a return on your investment. So how are you gonna get your money back, right? If, I mean, if it's a small opportunity that nobody ever wants to buy or some housing, how are you gonna make your return, right? So. Yeah. All right, I'm gonna do quick, um game here i'd love to rapid fire on your thoughts either a bull or a bear opportunity i'll go through maybe 10 items and then uh, you can close off with you know your final thoughts on on what some of the folks on here might want to take away so marty bull or bear geothermal bear darren i would say bear too even after that recent wasn't there just a 40 million dollar investment ever yeah, yeah. got it Hyperloop. Oh, I'm a bull. Yeah, I, I would say that. Yeah, bull. Yeah. Okay, this one it's not even worth asking, but I will. Hydrogen, hydrogen, hydrogen. What part of hydrogen is I, the bull? All of it. Uh, I'm I'm real bull on that because I'm actually working with hydrogen companies my <laughs> time, so <laughs> I think it's an amazing place to be. Yeah. I, I'm a bull, but I want to reset expectations in this country, which is, it is not a panacea. We are gaga for hydrogen right now. It's good, but it's not that good. So. Okay. Biofuels. Marty. Bear. Strong bear, like grizzly bear. Okay. Darren? Yeah, I, I think it's a bear. It's eventually going to be replaced, but it's transitional. Marty, yeah. is that in every market or are there certain markets where biofuels will make sense? everywhere okay great you know, it's interesting because you're seeing a lot of renewable diesel refineries being built right now there's a lot of money going right now into biofuels at this time um yeah so darren i, I want to be clear and janelle will be clear also which is there will be a lot of money poured after it no angel will ever make money i don't want to say universally but that that is those are big ticket projects done by epcs on the behest of the sun cores of the world um it is not a place where folks like us should be playing. That's true. And I might add, I've yet to see any biofuels plant hit 2,500 barrels a day, competing in a market of 105 million barrels a day. It just, it's a literal drop in the bucket. Okay. Um, new battery formations. I'm a bear. Uh, I don't know, I think that's pretty good. Yeah. I'm thinking nano one. Would you consider um, Amanda's business um, on the lithium part of that process too, Marty? No. So, uh, all right. Okay. So uh, components going into, or sorry, materials going into batteries, I'm, I'm yeah. bearish. Um, coming up with new chemistries. Uh, sorry, I'm bullish improve on components. Sorry, bullish yeah. on components, bearish on new chemistries. It just, it takes something like $10 billion to bring a new chemistry to market, which yeah. is just really, really hard for folks like us to play in. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, okay. Darren, did you answer that one? Um, yeah. I mean, I think the materials going to batteries is a big, big, we need to find ways to um, charge our cars faster and, and way less. <laughs> so, okay. One minute left, Darren, 20 minutes or 20, 20 minutes, 20 seconds snapshot on what you hope everyone can take away today. 
I, I think this is. I think it's fun to be an angel investor and 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 feel free to you know uh, it's it's a, take some risks here. That's how you're going to make a return is take some risk and really feel that you believe in something that you're going to invest in that's going to be big and that. So, Marty, I, I would. Uh just encourage everyone to take as broad of a lens as they possibly can. And so opportunities like this or programs like this that Jason's running, I think are fantastic. Uh, talk to leaders in the sector in North America, in Europe. A lot of what we're investing in, of course, these days is competing globally. And, and too often I find folks sort of take a very parochial lens. And so, the, you know, sort of the broader you can look at uh, opportunities, the better. Awesome. And my only takeaway is, you know, in this call alone, there's a community of folks that are, all of you are interested in learning more about angel investing or you have already, you can also learn a lot from each other. So carrying on the dialogue outside of what, uh, what's what been brought together today can, can help too. Thank you so much, gentlemen. It's been fantastic. Jason, do you wanna close off with any comments? Sure, the most important thing is we, we beat Juan and Ha. This, there was 55 people on the call today. So uh, kudos to our, our all-star panel. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Darren and Marty. Great insights. And I think someone said in the chat, uh, they set up a great contrast uh, with, with our panelists last week. Um, so thank you again. Um, and thank all of, all of you for taking some time this morning to join us. We look forward to seeing you on March 11th. And for our investors and CEOs, uh, uh, for the many touch points along the way until we get to our, our, our final deal on the 11th. Um, thank you all. Thanks, Jeanette, for a wonderful job awesome. moderating and uh, great job all. We'll see you again soon. Have a great day, everyone. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone. For more podcasts, subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes or visit us at www.actia.ca.